Well, we're continuing this series of messages about hope for five talks here in December right through to Christmas Eve. And what we've been doing is, is we've been launching each message and then concluding each service with a prayer from Scripture, from the book of Romans. And so let me just focus our thoughts in this prayer and receive it from Christ. And it's from the book of Romans chapter 15, verse 13, and it goes like this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And we've painted this picture of the contrast between typical human hope, which is a good thing and a positive thing, but it's really based on a wish. I'm going to do my best, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to study, I'm going to invest myself, and if things go right, then I wish or I hope this such and such will take place. But because we live in the real world, we know that life throws curveballs, and even though we have good intentions, sometimes things beyond our control come along and really put a dent in that hope. Biblical hope has a different foundation. Biblical hope is based on the very character of God. And so there's no level of uncertainty in the character and attributes of God. And I I gave this quote, it's not original with me, but someone has said, biblical hope is the future tense of faith. The future tense of faith. And so as Debbie said earlier, we're looking at biblical hope through the five senses. And we looked for the first couple of weeks at taste and then touch, and we really did it through telling the story, at least in part, of just two incredible women of faith, courageous women. And so two weeks ago, we began rolling out the story of Mary, who, when this took place in her life, in all likelihood, was a teenager, perhaps a young teenager. And she learns that she has been tapped to give birth to the Son of God. But it's going to be unique in the history of the world that she, as a virgin, as Scripture predicts 700 years previous to this, that a virgin will be with child. It says in the book of Isaiah that she will be, by the power of the Holy Spirit, with child. And you have to understand, and it's hard for us to understand, that at that time in history, and she would have been very cognizant of this, that this would cost her in all likelihood, and that it would cost her her family, her friends, her reputation, any chance at meaningful employment, the fact that she would probably never be married, which was very important in that culture, the fact that because of these things, that there's no social safety net, the only way to survive would be through begging or becoming a prostitute. That in fact, this activity, as people would see and assume things about her that were actually not true, could very well lead to her death by stoning. Yet her immediate response, if you were to read the story, in Luke chapter 1, verse 38, she says, after she hears and she understands the potential implications of this, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be as you have said. And this is a person, a young person, of incredible courage. And I don't care how old you are here this morning. 
God can use you, whether you're a child. They had a very profound message. And I hope we didn't miss that, the children. Or as a teenager or as an older person, which was the second character that we looked at last week, which was Elizabeth. And Elizabeth was a woman who was past the age of of bearing children, but prior to that in her life, she and her husband uh, would have prayed very often to have a child. But God had said no up until that point. And then God stepped into their life and touched them and said, actually, you are going to have a child and you're going to give birth to John the Baptist, who will be sort of the forerunner and the one that points us to the coming Messiah. While this takes place, um, Elizabeth is pregnant for about six months and there's a knock at the door. And just in recent days, Mary has had that visit from the angel and she goes immediately down to the hill country of Judea, quite a long trip, and she goes and stays with her relative Elizabeth who now is six months pregnant. When, she knock, when Mary knocks on the door and says hello, immediately Elizabeth is touched by God again. And we're told in the text that the baby leaps in her womb, doesn't move, but leaps in her womb. And then she's touched a third time and she's given a gift that she uses right away and says something to Mary. And we indicated from last week that, that God seeds these gifts in our life. And the expectation is that we will use them. They're never meant to just lie dormant. And this woman uses her gift and she affirms in Mary what God has said is going to take place. And we reference the fact that it's very likely for Mary that she's sitting there going, I know this is happening and I trust God, but wow, it's just mind-boggling. Was that a dream or something like that? And Elizabeth says, no, what God has conceived in you is going to take place. The third sense, and we're going to look at it this morning, is the sense of smell. And it's all about the smell of hope. I was asking the people in the office earlier this week, when you think about Christmas, what are the smells that come to mind? And smell is a very strong sense. And so they began to roll out their answers. They said, well, when I think about Christmas... Uh, One of them said, I think about cinnamon, cinnamon in the punch or in the eggnog or whatever. Someone else said hot chocolate. Someone else said, I I think of the smell associated from the smoke of a roaring fire. Someone else said, I think of, of the vivid smell throughout the house of a turkey cooking or a ham cooking for the Christmas dinner. Someone else said, the smell that you get that greets you when you break open a Christmas orange Someone else said a peppermint from the Christmas candy cane. And of course, is there any smell quite like the smell of a Christmas tree that's been freshly cut, a real one? So just in mentioning those smells, for many of us, it brings up memories from past activities in our life, or it sort of elicits anticipation of what's going to come for some of us, perhaps, in the next few days. I want to talk to you about a different set of smells. In fact, the smells of the first Christmas. 
So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. And we're going to look at some of the smells of the first Christmas. Luke is the third book in the New Testament, the third of four biographies on the life of Christ. Luke chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And so they would do this for two reasons primarily. One is to uh, make sure that their tax system was in place because they wanted to collect all the taxes they could, but also for military enrollment, which wouldn't have been a factor in Israel, but in other parts of the Roman world. So they take this census, and this was the first census that was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was required to go to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, which is in the north or the northern part of Israel, to Judea, which is more towards the middle or the south part of Israel, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. So what were some of the smells of the first Christmas, and what, their, what were their significance? Well, before we talk about that, let me just remind you, or maybe this is new for you, Luke was both a medical doctor and a historian, and so he goes to great pains to set the historical setting, and in those first eight verses, he stresses several things, and there's very significant reasons for them. First of all, he says, let me tell you about the current political situation when these things happen. And the reason he does that is to explain why Jesus ended up being born in Bethlehem. See, there's no reason that they would have made this journey. If you look on Google Maps, it's about a 157 kilometer walk through very arduous territory. I've walked that territory. It's on level. You have to think very carefully about where you're getting your next drink of water. You don't just set out walking. You've got to think it through. And it would have taken them at least a week of hard walking to make that journey. There's no way they would have just said, hey, let's go to Bethlehem and have, have this kid. Not a chance. Too dangerous too expensive, they were poverty-stricken. Uh, it would make no sense for them to make this journey unless they were required to do it. And so Luke says, hey, the census took place, they were required to go to Bethlehem to register for the tax system. The second thing he, he was stressing is he says, you know, here's why he went to Bethlehem, and I want you to know that he was born in Bethlehem because this is a fulfillment of another prophetic word written hundreds of years before about where the Messiah would be born. And all the people that were very well educated in that society knew and had anticipated that the birth of Messiah would be in Bethlehem. Finally, he wanted to show very clearly the humble nature of the surroundings of this birth. 
And so Luke sets in place with these eight verses the historical and chronological sort of moorings for this birth. And this is very contrary to what they were expecting. The Old Testament era nation of Israel, and to a certain extent, current Israel, at least some elements of it, assume that Messiah would be born in, in sort of majestic circumstances because their understanding of Messiah is that he would be a political warrior king. And so they assumed he would be, you know, uh, treated accordingly. A king that would then lead them to a place of prominence as a nation on the world stage. And so Luke says, listen, you got to understand something about our God. He's into stark contrast. We so often assume these things about how life works, or at least how life should work. And God has a very different approach, often diametrically opposed. And so there's a stark contrast between what their assumptions uh, were about how this birth would roll out and what reality really was. Now I'm going to suggest that there's a few smells that sort of waft off the page of this text. And the first one is the smell of manure. And I have a pail right here freshly delivered from FedEx this morning. And if you kind of lean up and breathe in, and whew, yeah, that's the real stuff. You know, most people think, most of us, we sort of think, you know, we see these nice little creches. Sometimes they're called stable scenes or manger scenes. And many of us, we have this very sort of sterile view of them. They're very clean. We want them to look nice. They're in our living room or whatever. They're very prim. They're very proper. They're very pressed. But verse 7 says, just like the kids illustrated for us this morning, the children, when they hung up the signs, there was no room for them in the accommodations in Bethlehem. Lots of people were traveling because of the census. They were required to travel. I'm guessing that the Motel 6 sign was flashing no vacancy. He had checked on his iPhone, and there was no vacancies on any of the websites. And so this setting that Luke paints for us is very typical. Likely, based on historical stuff and stuff you'll even see in that part of the world today, when they talk about a manger scene, it was likely a cave that had been hewed out of the rock with a feeding trough, or what we have translated in English, a manger, which was a convenient place to nestle this newborn child in. Or as you'll still find in different parts of the world, and Debbie and I have seen these kinds of things the, the, the stable or the manger area is actually attached to a house or an inn. And the animals and the straw and all their accompanying stuff, like in this blue bucket here, are kept in the same building as the family quarters. And you still see this today in some places. It's not clean, it's not prim, and it's not proper. In fact... It's dirty, it's dark, and there is the fresh, fresh smell of manure. 
I want you to think with me for a minute about this. This is incredibly, and it's profound. What does it say about the character of the king? Of God himself. Of the one that's created everything that there is. Of the one, the book of Ephesians says, that sustains all that there is. So in a sense, the next breath you breathe in is because he is enabling that. He's holding it all together. What does it say about the king of kings and lord of lords that he was born in a setting where you get the whiff of animal dung right in your face? In fact, when this service is over, I encourage you to come up here and smell this. Because smell is a very powerful sense. It burns in your memory. And so you, you all know, once in a while you're out doing things and you'll smell something and it will bring back an incredibly powerful memory when you smell whatever it is you smell. What does this setting say about the king? Jesus, the son of God, born in a humble place. The first visitors to Jesus were shepherds. That's why I read verse 8. And you can read the rest of their story in the latter part of Luke chapter 2. These are working individuals. They were very comfortable with the smell of manure and animal dung. And they were told, listen, you know, when you go to visit a king or you've heard stories about kings or maybe you've seen a king somewhere around town from a distance or whatever, uh, the king you're going to go see very different than the stories you've heard or the king you might have seen one time on your way to work or whatever. The king you're going to visit, the king of kings and lord of lords, from a human perspective, has no power. No money. Poverty stricken. No fanfare. No applause. In fact, this king is not going to have a purple robe on him, which was sort of like the cashmere of that day. This king will be wrapped in rags, surrounded by animals with smells like this in the air. And the king of kings, think about that with me. The king of kings steps into human history in obscurity, poverty, and humility. And so humility is the call sign of Jesus. The second, the second smell is, uh, is the smell of baby powder. Very distinctive smell, right? And, uh, you know, some of you are sitting there thinking, what does Dixon know about babies? Well, precious little. Uh, the reality is I didn't change too many diapers, a few of them, but not too many when the kids were little. Uh, shame on me kind of thing. Um, but when I think about this, when I think of a baby, this is the smell that comes to mind. After they've had a bath, and there's just a distinctive smell about them. As the parent cleans them up and puts typically some of this kind of stuff on them, and straps on a diaper. 
And when I think about that smell, the smell of a baby, the smell of baby Jesus, the word that comes to mind or the idea that comes to mind is approachable. You know, even the roughest, toughest, gruffest individual, most of them, when they see a little baby, their heart breaks a little bit, right? Even the toughest, roughest guy. And they see a little baby, and you, as a human being, you have that instinct to make sure that kid's protected. And even though, you know, especially those rough, tough ones, or, you know, they're, maybe they're even afraid to hold that kid, but if you put that baby in their arms... They may act, oh, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't want to do that. You know, deep in their heart, there's something really cool going on, right? When they hold that baby. And so as a baby, people approach Jesus. We read about, or we talked about the shepherds approaching him. Other people would have approached him and, you know, made all the funny baby noises that human beings make with babies. Perhaps as much as two years later. You know, when we see the crush scenes, we often see the magi or the wise men from the east in the crush setting. The reality is they weren't there at the time of birth. If you study the text, you know they followed the, the, the stars. And it might have been as much as two years later that they showed up on the scene. And they come, they approach the little one, and they worship him. The story of Christmas is that the God of all the universe came down. You know, some people have this idea that he kind of got it all running and then he's distant. It's called deism. It's an idea that he's a distant God. And it's not a very far step from there to agnosticism then and then a very far step to atheism after that. The scriptures... Have, have nothing to do with that kind of thinking. The scriptures tell us, yeah, that God created all that there is, and yet he also came down. That he's not a distant God. That he's a very approachable God. Just like when you see that newborn baby, you kind of want to get a look, right? And that carriage is going by in the mall, and you kind of peek a, a look you know, when mom isn't looking so you don't freak her out or whatever, you kind of peek a look at that little baby as the kid is going by. Because baby Jesus was approachable like any baby is. And every person can approach him like you'd want, like you'd want to with any baby. The third, the third image or the third smell is that of a diaper. And I was going to use a loaded diaper, but uh, I figured the manure uh, covered that aroma off. You know, the book of Philippians, chapter 2, tells us that after he got it all running and was sustaining it all, that Christ voluntarily humbled himself and took on human flesh. And in a way that, uh, you know, I'm going to say something and you're going to go, I can't figure that out. That's exactly right. You're not, it's going to blow some brain circuits. In a way, and the word is incarnation. The scripture says fully God, 100% God. 
he humbled himself and became at the same time and equally so 100% human. 100% God, 100% human. Not mixed, not like this, all in one person. And so we see this played out in the book of Luke. The idea that the baby Jesus, not long after he was born, needed his diaper changed because he had a loaded one. We don't think of him that way often, right? But fully human, just like us. In other words, he doesn't have to try to understand what you're going through. He gets it in real terms. He experienced it. The scraped knees, the harsh treatment on the playground or whatever that sometimes, sadly, children experience. He lived life. And if you read those four biographies of his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see as you trace his life that just like us, he was tested. He had lots of fun, like often many people are privileged to have in life. But he was also tested and tried, and Bible says, tempted in every single way to sin. Now the one fundamental difference with him is, unlike us, He made the choice not to sin. And it's not because he was God. It was because he was the spirit-filled God-man. Scripture is very clear about this. So he gets what it's like to be tempted, but he never stepped over the line and made the choice to sin. And so when when I think of a loaded diaper and the smell that is associated with a loaded diaper, the word or the idea that comes to mind is the word love. In fact, I would argue that all three of these smells are pronouncing to us there's no place that Jesus won't go. There's no thing that Jesus wouldn't do. There's no depth to which he would not descend for you. And that's pretty significant. And he does that to offer each person here relationship with him that has this incredible element of forgiveness and cleansing to it that cannot be achieved in any other way. It has associated with it um, a peace and goodness. It has associated with it grace, which is really everything that God has to offer to us. And yet we totally don't deserve it. There's no way we can earn it. It's something we receive as a gift. And so these smells evoke these truths. They burn them in our mind. And he does this for me. He does this for you. Relationship with him. So I just wonder here, How many people, let's just say in the last 12 months, have made some life choices to get their life rather messy? Which the scripture would say, we make some sinful choices. Not somebody else's fault, my fault, my choice. And it's made life messy, whether it's relationally or vocationally or financially or morally or spiritually or academically or romantically, whatever the case is, in some area or areas of our life, we've made these kinds of choices. Now, here's the really cool news about Christmas. Our mess 
the mess we have gotten ourselves into, that mess does not scare Jesus. Doesn't scare him at all. Because he was born, you know, look in the bucket there. He was born into that kind of mess. He started life in a mess. Again, if you've read his story, you know that he, he, he ended what we would consider physical life, and even though his life carried on after that, he ended physical life in a very messy way, hanging on the cross. And if, again, you read his life story, you know that he spent his whole life hanging out with messy people. And it was all emanating from, like what we talked about in the first of these five messages Mary was told, hey, Mary, you're going to have a kid. This kid is going to be a supernatural product from God. And here's the heart of the mission. This is why he's coming. It says in Matthew 1, and I believe it's verse 21, he's, come, he's coming that he might save his people from their sins. He's coming that he might save his people, meaning Scott, and everyone in this room, from Scott's sin. And so some of you are here in search mode, and maybe you're a little bit like the shepherds, you don't know too much about this dude, but you're kind of curious, you'd like to know him, you might even be open to him changing you, but you're just not so sure. As I sometimes will say, I just encourage you with all my heart, don't leave here with those question marks just hanging out in the sky somewhere. Go and talk to someone about this stuff. Talk to the people that invited you to come this morning. Talk to uh, the people that are going to be up at the front at the end of the service praying. Uh, Talk to one of the pastors that have been on the platform, whatever the case may be. And the things they'll talk to you about is this. Like we talked about just a minute ago, the heart of Jesus' mission was to save us from our sins. We've all made choices that have created messes in our lives that have separated us from holy God. And the way to be forgiven and to be cleansed is based on the fact that Jesus stepped into our mess and he dealt with it at the cross. And that after we're cleansed and forgiven and saved from that, the next natural step is to turn our life over to him and say, would you change me and shape me in light of this new relationship with you? So if you're here today and you're in search mode, I just encourage you not to leave. Before you come to a place where you can make an informed choice about some of these things. Some of us are here today, and uh, yeah, we're in relationship with Jesus. There was a time in our life when we gave our life to him, but if we were to have, um, you know, like an unvarnished talk, unvarnished truth talk, the reality is you'd say, yeah, I'm in drift mode, and my life looks a little messy, a little ragged around the edges right now. Can I just challenge you and say today's the day to get serious and to stop playing at this? And to take responsibility to grow spiritually. To say, God, I'm ready to repent wherever I need to. And that means I'm ready to change direction where I need to. Would you, would you forgive me for whatever choices I've made subsequent to my salvation? And would you get me back into healthy relationship with you? And then finally, there's those that are here that maybe they've been... Um, walking really faithfully with God. 
And maybe today you need to just simply say and yet very sincerely say, Lord, here am I. Surprise me. Surprise me. I'm up for anything. I'm available for anything. I'm ready for whatever you want to do. That's kind of a cool posture to have. But it comes as a result of the smell of manure, which indicates the humility of Jesus. He likes to work with humble people, right? It comes with the smell of baby powder, which just says Jesus is very approachable, just like you want to go and and, uh, pick up that brand new baby. Or it comes with the smell of a loaded diaper, which I think indicates his humanity and his love for us. The smell of the first Christmas. 